Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "Life O Dreams" by W. Douglas Newton. This was first published in the Windsor Magazine, November 1919. As far as I can tell, it was probably only ever published in the Windsor Magazine. And uh, it's one of two W. Douglas Newton stories that I pulled out for printing and reading um, because I'm a big fan of dream stories. I think about dreams a lot. And when I read this story, I, I was like, wow. I didn't know anybody else was doing this other than Lord Dunsany and H.P. Lovecraft. But that's exact, and I guess Edgar Allan Poe, but that's exactly what we have here. I think it's a, it's another kind of dream story. I, <laughs> there are so many stories. Um, I think at about the age of nine, one tends to write them in a fit of uh, creative exuberance that end with, and then I woke up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So would you mind letting me know what you mean when you say this is another dream story? Mm. What kind of genre, which genre does this fit in? Or actually maybe you want to tell us what basically happens in the story uh, or something about the author? Sure. I'll tell you, uh, W. Douglas Newton should be well known. He is not. The reason he should be well-known is because he apparently wrote a thousand stories. Uh, I doubt it's exactly that round number, but that's what the Science Fiction Encyclopedia says. It notes a number of uh, novels, including invasion novels, uh, which were a popular genre in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Basically, England's going to be invaded. Uh, War of the Worlds is a classic example, although that one, the invasion is not from Germany. It is rather from aliens from outer space. Um, so he, he was writing a bunch of stories that would fit into popular genres at the time. And uh, one of those would have been one by Lord Dunsany. Um, so Dunsany has these dreamland sort of stories, stories set in places, secondary worlds almost. Um, stories that are set in people's dreams or places that are visited. We've done shows on this podcast. Uh, there's one um, about a hashish, hashish eater, I think, um, who comes up to Lord, uh, basically Lord Dunsany and says, uh, I've been to the place you named <laughs> in your story. It's amazing. And then the police chase after him and out of the restaurant. And Lord Dunsany turns to his his uh, dinner companion and says, I made that up. <laughs> that store place does not exist. That guy's been having too many drugs, right? Um, so he's kind of laughing at this idea. Um, and uh, Lovecraft uh, has a number of stories that are classified as the Dreamland stories. Um, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is his uh, longest work in that, and that's a whole novel, uh, which is set in a land of dreams. Um, this is a kind of dreamland story, too. Um, it has a real place and a fictional place, uh, but they're both supposed to be on the Earth, and sometimes that's true in dreamland stories. But what's so strange about this one is that there's one man with two bodies, 
one man who dreams by night of his life by day on the other side of the earth. And that is something I've not seen before. It's uh, something I think has been explored a little bit in films. There's a movie called Sliding Doors that does something similar to that. Um, you might think of a parallel universe story where, you know, you had made a decision one way or another. Here, we get a bit of that, but um, there's this whole colonialism and what you're going to do to make your own life, you know, meaningful after you finish studying for whatever it is you're studying. So there's a whole other level to this. Um, and I, I mentioned that other story that W. Douglas Newton wrote that I printed out and uh, read. It's called Vision. It's almost exactly the same story, <laughs> except the, the guy goes and does it um, rather than sits at home and uh, takes a job and studies. So that's, that's why I thought this story was interesting and how it fits into that whole other dream genre. I, let me uh, restate the way the story, the, the plot of the story. I'm mm -hmm. uh, not sure that I that I heard it in what you said. Although everything you said about the story is true, um, there's a guy named Anstey mm -hmm. who is talking to a fellow named Lowndes in London, and he says to Lowndes whom he had known for years, uh, had known years previously at Cambridge and have just become reacquainted more recently. Um, he tells Lowndes that when he goes to sleep, he becomes Oswald Sleeth, um, a person who is basically the only Englishman in a rather undeveloped uh, place in uh, the South Pacific called Kalbina. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's actually the South Indian Ocean. Uh, yeah, I, you're, you're right. It's, it's off the I, coast I, I, of uh, Burma, basically. Right. Um, hmm. Okay. It's, it's to the uh, left of... Uh, to the left. To the, to the right <laughs> of India, to the left of Burma. Okay, the Indian Ocean, thank you. Um, there's a 12-hour time difference, apparently, between London and Kalbina. And in Kalbina, which he inhabits apparently only when he's asleep in London, um, he, as Oswald Sleeth, manages to bring order to the land and raise it in many ways, um, but people who lose out in the course of this modernization have it in for them. And Anstey tells Lowndes, I'm going to be dead within a week. And sure enough, Anstey is dead. And before Lowndes can go to the house to see if, in fact, something had happened to him, he sees in the morning paper a little notice that Oswald Sleeth has mysteriously died um, in this place called Calbina. 
So, uh, whoa, he really is living two lives in two places. And it's all a dream, but it's a dream that's a reality. So in addition to the questions that you raise, uh, Jesse, about the nature of imperialism, which is a subtext here, and how one decides to spend one's life, there are at least uh, two other things, uh, it seems to me. One is, what is the reality of dreams? Mm -hmm. um, You know, when people say you should always have a dream, uh, they're not saying you should always waste your time fecklessly. They're saying something that matters. Um, so what's what is the reality of dreams? And then there is another aspect to this. Uh, modernization is equivalent to a number of things. One of them is peace. But another has to do with economics. There's an economic subtext running through this. When Lowndes and Anstey are first talking, um, it is acknowledged that Anstey had a spectacularly good mind. Uh, as a student, he was expected to take on great responsibilities and make great contributions to England. But instead, he's become a clerk, an insurance agent. And many, many times in the story, we're told that this is just the easiest job in the world. In fact, when it's first introduced, it says, the work of an insurance clerk is not a very great strain on the intelligence. So there's a, a question of economic vitality, mental effort, and then writ large, what about the, the smart, active Englishman being able to do something uh, to help the disorganized but potentially um, successful Calbinians or Calbs as they're called? Um, a lot of that is, I think, subtext here. For me, a real does that sound right? By exactly the way? right. Okay, so for me, a real question in reading the story, in in evaluating the story, is whether I should take the the questions that I infer from the subtext as being something the story, in a sense, I know this is personification wants me to think about Mm -hmm. and to what extent they're just in the air when Newton is writing and he just puts them in. Um, and in 1919, that would be perfectly understandable, uh, as just normal, sort of like, uh, uh, treating a, a woman character dismissively in a, a 1930s uh, hard-boiled detective story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even ask us to consider feminism, but we moderns think of it and say, wait a minute, why are they treating women that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I overreading this story no. because I have sense, I'm sensitive? Well, if you think it's really there, then the fact that the plot is comparatively simple is not important to me because it forms a, a skeleton on which we can hang this much meatier set of subjects. I agree. Um, it, one, of, one of the things that Newton, in those thousand stories and at least a handful of novels he was known for was something which was pretty interest, you know, popular at the time, as you say, in the air, which was eugenics. And he was against the idea. Uh, he, uh, he talked about it a lot in his stories, and he, he thought about it a lot. 
everybody was thinking about it back then in the same way that everybody today is thinking about something. It's in the air, right? But here, um, there is a, I think, a special, like, this This isn't a dream story like I had a dream and uh, let me write it down for you. This is a dream story like I have a life dream. I plan to go and do these things. And we have that, as you say, he was expected to do things. Um, I'm going to read a quote from the bottom of the first page. It was very freely prophesied that he would do great things in the world. Such a well-equipped mentality and such a powerful personality were destined for the largest of all possible spheres. It's kind of a little joke there because, of course, he's talking about the earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and at Cambridge, they were all certain that Anstey was one of those men who would carve out a huge destiny and perhaps regenerate the world. Now, what actually happens, Bernard Anstey uh, basically doesn't do anything. He fritters away his his mind, taking on uh, menial and easy jobs. He is uh, not demoted at his work. In fact, he gets a pay raise, but someone junior to him uh, gets promoted, and they give him the pay raise to make him feel a little better about the fact that he was not promoted. And now we find out at the time the story starts that he's dying. He's gone to his friend from university and said, "How, how am I doing and the doctor says, well, there's something wrong with you, but uh, uh, just give you a tonic and that'll solve you. He said, no, I'll be dead within a week. Um, this me- this death uh, occurs from not something he's doing in his life, but something he's doing in his dream life. And Oswald Sweet- uh, Sleeth, which is a very interesting name, is active in the world, whereas Bernard Anstey is completely passive in the world. Um, I don't know if you knew this, Eric, but uh, W. Douglas Newton's first uh, well, complete name um, is Wilfred Bernard Michael Newton. He's put and, himself and, into Anstey's role. Right, because Anstey's first know, name. Is right. Bernard. Yes. Right. And the fact that we have this other guy, Oswald Sleeth, that that name is very slippery to me, and I, I want to know more about it. In the illustrations, the two illustrations that are shown, uh, you know, side to side in the story, um, we see Sleeth in uh, his eastern kingdom basically running this island nation and making it prosperous and wielding power like a colonial. There's actually a call out to a specific colonial um, uh, trying to remember the name of the guy, but basically he, he was... His name is James Brooke. Brooke, right, um, of Sarawak who became the White Raja of Sarawak and basically was given a part of, of uh, this Asian um, country to run as his own kingdom. And this lasted uh, past him as well. So this story has a kind of tie to the, that colonial future and the Great British Empire. 
And here we have a man who never leaves England and yet dreams and dies. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot going on underneath the, the bare skeleton of the frame or the bare skeleton of the, of the actual plot, right? One, uh, <clears throat> there is one of, let's, let's take a look. <coughs> Pardon me. Let's take a look, if you don't mind, at uh, a thread or two at a time. Mm -hmm. Since you raised the colonialism one, I'd like to I'd like to do that if it's all right with mm -hmm. you. So here are two quotes um, from the book. When I go to sleep, and stay tells Lowndes, in this lodging house sitting room of Warwick Street, Victoria, London, I am awake at once in Calbina and live my life there. Live it in splendid, acute reality, so active that this life in London seems the dream, the force that industry and prosperity, the, the force that had brought civilization to this barbarous place was the will of an Englishman, an Oswald Sleeth, who had first become a settler and then, like Brook of Sarawak, had become the chief living force in the place. Okay, so that's the first Later, a couple of pages later, the Calbs, and I proved it a correct one. This is his thought, thought about them, are a fine, hardy, strong, and industrious people. Then they lacked direction. They wanted, meaning lacked, energy. Uh, sorry, sorry they, they wasted energy in intertribal fighting and inter-island raiding. It only wanted, meaning lacked, a strong, direct mind to control them, and they would yield magnificent results. I saw that at once. Now, when he says I saw that at once, this is a confirmation of the great mind for administration that his Cambridge school fellows had noticed in, um, in Anstey. But there's something else going on here. If you read those things together, it sounds to me as if what Anstey is urging on Lowndes is a Hobbesian argument for government. Hobbes and Leviathan, remember, at the end of the 17th century, says that the life of an Englishman, the life of a man in isolation, uh, the natural man, is nasty, poor, is, sorry, is solitary, uh, solitary, nasty, poor, brutish, nasty, and brutish, short. and short. Exactly. Now, here we have an Englishman in isolation, but he's not in isolation away from people. Hobbes argues from this notion of solitary, poor, nasty, brutus, in short. He, he argues that we must have top-down government. He argues, in fact, that the king must control the, the nobility, the nobility must control their serfs and other attendant uh, folk, that in fact we get to the family where the father must control, the adults control the children. It's all a matter of control because without control, people will be fighting. There will be this inter-tribal fighting and inter-island raiding. So in effect, what Anstey is saying is they needed me. This is a justification for colonialism that, in fact, in England had already been thrown off. No longer in, the, in 1919 did anyone believe that there needed to be a central absolute authority 
In fact, it had become a parliamentary democracy. So there is a, a notion here of an old racially justified kind of imperialism. And why I asked at the beginning, Jesse, how you think we're to think about the story, if, in fact, we know that that Newton doesn't think that eugenics is a good idea, then maybe he doesn't think that racial superiority is a justification. And all of the story here about uh, Anstey's life as Oswald Sleeth is, in fact, despite the economic success of Calbina, an argument against imperialism, Mm -hmm. against colonialism. Now, that's a very, very complicated argument to make because this is a 1919 publication. When it talks about the regeneration of the world, a contemporary reader, especially in England, cannot help but think of the vast waste that has happened to our generation because of the Great War Mm -hmm. that they've just suffered through for four years. Right. So the regeneration of the world is coming back to strength, whereas what Lowndes is uh, what what Anstey is doing is trying to give strength. Well, it's great to regenerate. Right. That's good. But if if Newton is saying this isn't the way to do it, how do we how do we judge the economic issues? Because the Cal- the Calbs need that money. They need to to come along. The alternative, and these are the people we think kill Oswald Sleeth, are superstitious and narrow-minded, and previously have been opium sellers mm. who were themselves trying to get rich by hooking people on dreams. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is it that this guy does? He's an insurance agent. Something that requires no intelligence, so he says repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And yet, an insurance agent is always looking to the future. He's always making a bet about how things will come out. And the whole point of insurance is to figure out how much money you're actually going to need. So, <laughs> in a way, I think if we want to give this the most positive reading that is to see this as the best story it can be what it's arguing is that the simply good things that we would normally suppose peace wealth health education are not inherently good things if they lead to domination violence dissension uh, and so on. And in the case of of our main character, Anstey, a life lived entirely in isolation. Because not only is he the only Englishman in Calbina, but the reason everyone has fallen out of touch with him is that in London, in crowded London, full of English people, he has decided to work in an isolated way go home early and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. It's it's an extraordinary story, it seems to me, if one doesn't read it just as a story of he goes to sleep one place, lives in a dreamland, and then when he dies in one, he dies in the other, which, by the way, sounds a lot like Poe's Milana Tonta. Um, mm. 
but in, since you wanted other dream stories. But in fact, there are these subtexts that tie together colonialism, government forms, economics, and, so, and education. It seems to me looking at them together makes this a, uh, a disturbing and illuminating story. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a really interesting subtext going on. Uh, when he he we're told he arrives in uh, Calbina uh, for the first time, he is replacing a another English agent who's thick with uh, alcoholism and is uh, tries to poison uh, Sleeth uh, about the island, but he's having none of it. Um, and soon he finds himself, you know, rising in the ranks. And then um, we're told about how the Ranj, which I guess is their version of of the Rani or the um, or the Raj, the Raj, right? It says half and yeah, half. Rani means princess, right? And the the Rajas, right? So he's he's becoming the Raj himself. And then I want to read a few lines from page four seventy one because this this um, secret society is just. It's so interesting. If we look at this story as a psychological story, that that um, if we don't have those clippings from the newspaper and we can't find that island on our maps, then this is all very important. Um, my becoming ranch was an excellent thing for Calbi- for Calbina. You will see why in, in Pollard. So Pollard is this guy who's been writing about about uh, Oswald Sleeth, but of course. From that moment onward, I was their decisive enemy, and there is capitalized. There could be nothing for it but war to the death. Lowndes interrupted, who are they, capital T? He asked, a bush society, a secret society. You know these native secret societies are all over Africa, and they're in Calbina too. Religion is in it. A beastly sort of religion, blood sacrifices and other abominations. In the old days, they they called themselves the Brotherhood of Skulls. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's two skulls in this story. We're he- we're he- oh, we're headhunters in Calvina, or rather, we were <laughs> had the most sinister power. They terrorized the superstitious people just worked their will through the threat of witchcraft and witch doctory and the like. I'll skip down a bit. In the blackness of the bush, black rites go on secretly. Latterly, even they have become bolder. Bolder, yes, and stronger. Uh, our um, doctor asks his friend, uh, how is that? And he says, the dissatisfied have gone over to them. In progress, there is always reaction. There are always elements who are the enemies of advance, the baser and the indolent, who see themselves threatened by a common honesty and a common industry. Skipping down a bit. Who can be ruined by progress, asked Lowndes. The opium sellers, said Anstey. When I, when Oswald Sleeth first went into Calbina, there was opium everywhere. Opium has been forbidden. There is a secret trade, but it is vanishing fast. And then skipping down a bit, I was able to see that I had no choice. Uh, I had choice of two evils. Frankly, I had to undo all that I had done in Calbina or die. 
And we find out he does die, of course. But right before that, it says, And I am afraid I was a trifle too blunt. I told them brutally I knew exactly what was in their minds and that I would have no truck with them. So he chooses to die over uh, allowing the opium trade to happen again. This is very, very funny. Because who are the people pushing opium in the in the East? <laughs> it's the British, right? They had a whole war over this. Um, and here there's a British man whose job it is to clean up this island. And the secret society of the skulls is the one that is trying to bring it back. And opium, of course, is highly associated with dreaming. Dreaming by night, but more importantly, dreaming by day. All of these facts that you're recounting to us and are, indeed, they make us want to think much more about the psychology and the psychology, as it were, of, of England, as in addition to the psychology of individual English people. Um, all of this, Anstey tells Lowndes, will be corroborated, the factual parts of it, um, if you could read Pollard. Mm-hmm. Pollard is an interesting word. Uh, it's not a word that I learned as a child, although I'm a native speaker of English. Um, Pollard is something, though, that you see all over in England and all over, at least in Western Europe. Um, a pollarded tree is one of those trees where the top branches have been cut off. They look sort of squared off. Mm-hmm. You see them down big avenues. The point being that more leaves will come out and you'll get bushier trees. So if the trees can be planted further apart and still have shade over the entire uh, lane. It's considered quite attractive. It's considered fancy. To pollard a tree means to prune it back radically. There's also such a thing as an animal, like a stag, for example, that has no horns at all. That's pollard also. So to pollard is to make something be a pollard. A pollard is something that really is limited, that's cut back. I can't help but think that this book, which is unnamed, and Pollard, who has no given name, that this book that Anstey is happy to recommend to Lowndes for corroboration, Anstey understands will only give the facts that Anstey wants understood. Mm. That all the other parts that might be, in fact, the more pointed parts, the further developed parts, these have all been removed. Mm-hmm. This uh, story has one word that repeats and repeats and repeats. It's on the first page. It's on the last page. I'm just going to read some of these here. Anstey was a queer fellow, and there was something mysterious about him. A result of the queer life Anstey had led. Your case is queer, but the symptoms are absolutely petty. They're queer, said Lowndes. And then at the end, what does Lowndes say after he finds out that his uh, friend from university is now dead? A very queer case, said the doctor, suddenly, and violent stomach and bowel trouble. A most queer case. And what are you implying, Jesse? I'm implying that maybe by day I live this life as a podcaster, tutor, and by night... I rule another planet, Eric. They are lucky to have you. (laughs) 
that's one of the things that I find there's always more to say. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.